Hello, and welcome to another episode of our podcast recorded at the Seventh-day Adventist Church of Adairsville. I'm Jared, and we're delighted you're listening. But if you're ever in the area, we'd be even more excited if you dropped in to say hi and enjoyed some good Southern food with us. I want to tell you that my grandfather served in the military. And so my mom and uncles and aunts grew up on a military base. And as my mom tells me, she attended the Protestant church. There weren't lots of options on the base. There were two. And as I look to my father's background, the family was all Church of Christ until they met some reckless Seventh-day Adventist that disrupted some things. And many people started to study out some of these things that Scripture continues to reveal. It was my uncle Mike who ended up... uh, attending a series of meetings where the topic we're going to discuss today was discussed. And he thought, this is the truth, and began to share that with his family. So I, I can only say I thank someone who had the courage to share this message long ago, because without that, I wouldn't be here today. A couple things. What I'm going to share with you today has been preached probably by hundreds and thousands of individuals. So there's really nothing original I'm going to share with you today. None of the resources, none of the materials, you can find these in a lot of different places by many people who've talked about them for hundreds of years. And today we are going to discuss America the Beautiful. And before we begin, I want you to to know something that many people don't necessarily believe anymore. I still believe America is the greatest country on earth. I believe God himself was involved in founding this nation and the principles that established this nation. And so we're going to look at what he says. Many don't know. Why would the Bible talk about the United States? Does it really? So here we go. The Bible is a book about how the world and civilization often has interacted with God and his friends and followers. This is why scripture does not talk about every nation in the history of the world. But it does make a mention of those that have a strong interaction with God himself or with his people. And we look look in scripture and we see countries like Sodom, Egypt, Nineveh, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. Last week we talked about the papacy. And today we're going to talk about America and the purpose for which it was founded. As we've been going in our story, we came to a time where the old world is crumbling. And if we looked in the news today, it still feels like old world Europe is crumbling. The world is definitely in a, in a mess. But the question is why? Why was the old world ending? To those who were looking to go back to the primitive church, they had that craving to experience life and liberty like the early disciples. And by liberty, I mean liberty to speak and believe freely. We call this the apostolic church, the one the apostles had. How do we get back to that? The one Jesus really founded. 
The King of England is quoted as saying to those Protestants in Europe craving for that old experience, conform or harry them out of the land or else worse, according to George Bancroft. J.G. Palfrey writes, hunted, persecuted, and imprisoned. Many could only see dark days ahead, talking about Europe in the Dark Ages. For those who wanted to serve God according to the dictates of their conscience, England was ceasing forever to be a habitable place. They fled to Holland. They left their homes and their lands because of religious persecution. They became known as the Puritans, a Protestant group where their motto was this, and I find this motto still relevant today, to walk together in all his ways, made known or to be made known. God shows us something that is true, sign me up. This was the true spirit of Protestantism and the Reformation. Men like their pastor John Robinson, were teaching that Luther and Calvin and Knox and others would have kept the Reformation flame burning and progressing. And he said, were they now living, they would be as willing to embrace further light as that which they first received, according to the history of the Puritans. And he goes on. This is his charge just before they leave Europe, these pilgrims. Remember your promise and covenant with God to receive whatever light and truth shall be made known to you from his written word. For it is not possible the Christian world should come so lately out of such thick anti-Christian darkness and that full perfection of knowledge should break forth at once. In other words, guys, don't think we have it all figured out yet. God is going to keep revealing things to us as we keep asking him to. And it was this creed, with this creed, they set sail for the new world and a new life. They had seen the evils of what would happen when religion tried to define and punish heresy. And they saw the value of keeping church and state separate. But sadly, this is crazy. Not long after they arrive, many begin to mandate that only church members can serve in government. And it was not long before persecution arose in the new world. Before they left the shores of Holland, Pastor Robinson had said to them, I am very confident the Lord has more truth and light yet to break forth out of his holy word. So that was their encouragement. Don't slow the progress down. Another man arrives to the new world, Roger Williams. He agreed with John Robinson that it was, and I quote, it was impossible that all the light from God's word had been received. For thousands of years, superstition and hiding of the Bible had existed. They believed there was more coming out of this book. 
Roger Williams is known as, and I quote, the first person in modern Christendom to establish civil government on the doctrine of the liberty of conscience, the equality of opinions, of opinions before the law, according to Bancroft. When Williams arrived in America, he found church attendance was mandated by law in the land of the free, and this disgusted him. Imagine, we left that world. We braved the hardships. We've left everything we knew. And we're forcing people to worship a certain way. He didn't want anything to do with it. He begins to preach and teach. And he became a respected and loved leader and minister. A man of rare gifts, we are told. He had integrity, kindness. People liked him. But as he kept teaching and preaching tolerance and freedom of speech, and freedom of conscience, he was accused, according to Bancroft again, of subverting the government and society. And so he was sentenced for a crime, as an enemy of the state. And to escape arrest, he was forced to flee in the cold, stormy winds of winter into the deep forest. He wrote later, and I quote, For 14 weeks I was sorely tossed in a bitter season, not knowing what bread or bed did mean. But the ravens fed me in the wilderness, and a hollow tree served as a shelter. He continued through the snow and the forest until he found refuge with an Indian tribe whose confidence and affection he won while teaching them the truths of the gospel. So finally, he makes it to the shores of Narragansett Bay. I hope I said that right. He laid the foundation for the first state in the new world that would recognize religious freedom. And I quote, that every man should have liberty to worship God according to the light of his own conscience. That state would become known as Rhode Island and became the asylum for civil and religious liberty, the cornerstones of the American Republic. The Declaration of Independence, which would come on the scene, would eventually state, all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the Constitution guarantees in the most explicit terms, no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And word begins to spread around Europe and around the world. There is a land where everyone might enjoy the fruit of his own labor and obey the convictions of his own conscience, America. And thousands begin to come to our shores. The French, experiencing this revolution, they end up giving a gift, the Statue of Liberty, where on it today reads in a poem, 
that Lady Liberty is called the Mother of Exiles. And it says there today, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. I was looking at the statistics. We've had 51 countries tuning in in the last four weeks to our messages. And I promise you, some of those countries on that list do not have the freedom that this country provides today. People heard about it. They wanted to come here because they wanted to believe the way they wanted to believe. So what does the Bible say about this country? If you want to turn with me to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. All of these notes will be on our website, so you can dive in. You can see all the references, all the, all the details here. So if that helps you enjoy what we're studying more, you don't have to frantically keep a lot of notes. Revelation 13. In the first verses identifies a power that comes up out of the sea. And in the Bible, there are a lot of symbols used in prophecy. Not many people study prophecy with the keys of saying, this book that tells the prophecy will interpret the prophecy. And it's with that understanding of, I can find the answers in the same book that told me the prophecy. We read in Revelation 17, 15, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So we read a symbol that when the Bible in prophecy talks about a sea, it's talking about people or a populated area. So this is a beast rising up out of a populated area. If you'll remember last week, we learned a few details. We learned that the the harlot, beast, or kingdom being described here, ruled for 1,260 years. It was guilty of claiming the power to forgive sins, which only God can do. It was guilty of changing the Ten Commandments. It was guilty of persecuting those who kept the Sabbath of creation, and it was guilty of persecuting those who prized liberty of conscience. Verse 10 says, This power that led others into captivity would be led into captivity. And the picture of Napoleon's army going into Rome and capturing the Pope fulfills this prophecy. The kingdom most Protestant scholars, along with Scripture, identify this power as is the Roman Church. But that's not where we're focusing this morning. As this superpower is fading in the world in the late 1700s, what would the Bible say would come next? Would there be another nation that would interact with God's people? And so we read in Revelation chapter 13, and we're going to pick up at verse 11. Before I do that, though, I just want to make clear, Daniel 7.23 interprets a beast as a kingdom or an empire. So in prophecy, when we're reading about a beast... It's talking about a country, a kingdom, an empire, a superpower. So when one is fading and another is coming up, we're talking about empires. One empire is fading, another is rising. So the Roman church is represented in the first half of Revelation 13 like other nations before it. And here's an interesting point. As a beast that is a carnivore. 
And if you know about carnivores, carnivores eat what? They eat meat. Herbivores eat plants. If you look at the beasts that prophecy uses to describe the kingdoms rising and falling in Daniel, Babylon conquers other countries and kills them and is recognized as a lion and comes on the scene. And then another beast, the bear, takes that out and has ribs in its mouth. So the Bible really makes it clear this beast has destroyed another beast to become the empire on the earth. One after the next, civilizations have usually come and gone by war. And, and we saw that again here in the first half of Revelation 13. Another beast comes on the scene. But then in the second half of Revelation 13, we get to some nitty-gritty details. This is very, very important. There's a new nation, a new empire. And what does it say? I saw, in verse 11, another beast, so we could say another kingdom, another empire, coming up, or some versions describe it, growing up, out of, is it the sea or the earth? Out of the earth. So if the sea, remember in creation, the sea and the, and the land were divided. The sea is the place of water. The land is dry land. So if we understand all the other nations come up out of the sea, out of what, with our prophetic symbols and keys, out of populated areas... This one says it comes up out of the earth, an unpopulated area. So that's a key. So it says, I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and it gives us further description. He had two horns like a lamb. Now there's a lamb and there's a sheep. Then when a sheep has horns, sometimes we call it a ram. So there's different stages of growth. But this nation is not described as it starts as some ferocious lion or bear or leopard or dragon-like beast. It's described as a lamb. A new kingdom growing up in an unpopulated area of the world symbolized by a lamb, a herbivore, that does not need to conquer another kingdom to rise up. And it grows up slowly, innocently, like a lamb. The lamb, if we use more symbols in the Bible and in prophecy, the lamb is a symbol of Christ. So there's something to do with this nation and the principles that Jesus established. The words of G.A. Townsend describe it like this. Like a silent seed, talking about America, we grew into an empire. How about the horns? Lamb-like horns. These are innocent. These are just signs of something's here, but they're not fully grown, showing that there is innocence and gentleness here. It is not a dangerous animal that can defend itself yet. When we see horns in the Bible, horns often represent power. Horns often, like in Revelation 13.1, have crowns on them. Crowns in the old world were typically on two types of individuals, kings and pontiffs. 
But what would these two sources of power be in this rising nation? Seeing that no other power could be identified here but America as it's rising and the old world is falling, history, history reveals that two particular principles of this country began to be its identifiers. Republicanism, which is not the republicanism of 2019, the idea of being a republic, and Protestantism. These were the fundamental principles of this nation's founding. Many identify these principles as the secret of its power and prosperity. The separation of church and state. A country was forming, marked with peace and prosperity, where you could have a church without a pope and a state without a king. A new world, a new civilization, a new country... For what purpose? Where Protestantism could continue onward. That was the purpose. Revelation 13, 11, that same verse, ends with something strange. He had two horns like a lamb, and then the scene totally changes. And he spoke like a dragon. We go from a fairy tale tale to a nightmare. How could this lamb-like, innocent nation become the most fearsome of all monsters on the earth, a dragon? How could this nation transform from a lamb, a symbol of Christ, into acting, speaking like a dragon, which the Bible says, is the fallen angel Lucifer. How does that happen? It does not happen all at once. If we're being honest, we have some sad realities in our past as a country. Indian genocide. Slavery. Racism. These were not the reason this country was founded. The motto of John Robinson and Roger Williams and of the Puritans and Protestants that founded America was this. Truth is progressive. Truth is never stagnant. Truth keeps progressing. We can never say, I know enough. We've got it figured out. We've written it down. All is well. We can't ever do that. And yet for some reason, as this nation is rising, the Protestant churches of America stopped believing and stopped practicing this principle. But the good news, God was not done yet. And another reformer is raised up. A farmer, a military man, a patriot, a man, this is strange why God would go after people like this, but this is what he does. So never think that you're not the picture of what the type of person God uses. God goes after a man who doubts the Bible and its validity in history. And William Miller 
begins to study this book. He's turned off of Scripture and Christianity like much of our generation today. The doctrines of the old world were still badges of slavery of the Dark Ages and the medieval church. Doctrines that most of the churches at this time still held, and sadly, still do. That there is a burning hellfire where people go to. That's unbiblical. That there's a secret rapture and not a visible second coming. Not biblical. That the dead just move on to the next life. Not biblical. You can see why William Miller, a 34-year-old, I don't want anything to do with this. Christianity, religion, it teaches things that aren't even in its book. Uh, The churches were teaching prophecy is sealed. God and the books of Daniel and Revelation, they can't be understood. They're a mystery. The millennium, these thousand years that prophecy talks about, that'll be on the earth, not in heaven. Israel was the country to keep your eyes on, not the United States. And so William Miller is wrestling with these things, which, is it fair to say, those still sound familiar in Christendom today. But the biggest thing that caught Miller's attention was the accuracy of the time prophecies of the Bible. In John 14, 29, I want to read something to you. Why does the Bible have so much to talk about the future? In John 14, 29, it says this, Jesus' words, And now I have told you before it comes to pass, that when it does come to pass, you may believe. If I could use my own words, God says, I'm going to tell you the future before it happens, so that when it starts to happen, you will start to say there's something true in this book. And so William Miller starts to say, something's up here. I'm trying to discredit this stuff, and I'm kind of sick of all these false teachings, but I keep getting into the prophecies, the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel that predicts exactly when Jesus would die was exact. The 2300-day prophecy, there's something here that even Martin Luther and others had said, something's going to happen in the 1800s prophetically. Or the 1260 days, he saw Protestant leaders in history. They saw the fall of the Roman church. And William Miller was curious as to why the Jewish leaders of his day had pronounced a curse on all who studied Daniel 9. So it was all these things that he's trying to take in. And after years of study, he becomes convinced and convicted that the imminent second coming of Jesus was near, and that sometime around 1843-1844, Jesus would return to the earth at the close of the 2300-year prophetic time prophecy. And so Miller, think of this conviction. He decides to spend his wealth, risk his reputation, and devote his life 
to telling everyone he can in America, Jesus is coming soon. Now, whether you agree with someone's theology or not, if they put their whole life, wealth, and reputation on the line to tell people something that they believe is a life and death issue, I think that's worthy of respect. And those who believe this message would become known as Millerites or Adventists, not Seventh-day Adventists. See, because Miller, there were some things he still didn't quite buy into. He goes to his grave not fully convinced of the Seventh-day Sabbath. But it's a good thing God does not hold us to a standard of perfection he hold, uh, that, is, that is arbitrary. He holds us to, how much light have I given you, and how much of it have you accepted? That's the standard. But William Miller is not alone at this time in his understanding. Like at the beginning of the 16th century, around the world, something was happening, what many describe as a great awakening in the first half of the 19th century. The Middle East, Europe, South America, England. A message, something is happening. The Protestant Reformation is continuing. There's things in this book we still have to figure out. But the center of it all was on the eastern shore of the United States, where an empire was growing. The majority of the churches, they rejected the idea of an imminent second coming, and they began to buy the doctrine coming out of Europe of a secret rapture. They rejected the further reforms being called for in the Protestant movement and various Protestant churches. See, God was trying to complete the Protestant Reformation in the land of the free, and yet a battle was raging for the soul of this nation. Think about this in the 1840s. 1830s, 1840s, 1850s. What's going on in America? Well, America is on the brink of war. A civil war would break out. After all, divide and conquer from within is the most seditious of all threats to any institution, including the human body. An autoimmune disease is arguably the worst of all because your body is attacking itself. Abraham Lincoln had this to say about the Civil War. And before I say that, you'll remember last week we read that the Protestant Reformation started that was a threat to an empire. And the empire starts something called the Counter-Reformation, the Society of Jesus, to squelch down this Protestant heresy. Abraham Lincoln says this, This war would never have been possible without the sinister influence of the Jesuits. We owe it to, this is Lincoln's words, we owe it to popery that we now see in our land reddened with the blood of our noblest sons. It is the promises of the Jesuits, the money and the weapons. The Protestants of both the North and the South would surely unite to exterminate the Jesuits if they could hear the plots made in Rome to destroy this republic. 
a letter dated June 8, 1864. And sadly, the church, it did not continue the movement. It did not continue to say, whatever's in this book that has proven to be right, we want to keep learning and keep applying new things. The Protestant movement, by and large, said, enough. We got enough here. We're okay. And so the church begins to slip back into the superstition and persecution of the Dark Ages in America. A professor at Oberlin College says, and I quote, churches generally, at, his, at this time, are becoming sadly degenerate. Many wanted to follow what they knew to be right, but they trusted their pastors who forbade them from going to hear the Protestants, from doing those things that people were saying were continued reforms. There was persecution from family members and from fellow church members. Ellen White, one of those who begins to hear William Miller's preachings, quotes this, He who deliberately stifles his convictions of duty because it interferes with his inclinations or urges or desires will finally lose the power to distinguish between truth and error. There's things you know to be right that you keep pushing aside. This statement's arguing eventually you won't know how to tell truth from error. Spurgeon is quoted as saying, The Church of England dares still go into the pulpit and call itself Christian. Howard Crosby, and I quote, It is a matter of deep concern that we find Christ's church so little fulfilling the designs of its Lord. So there were, there were men all over the place saying, We don't have it all figured out. Pride goes before the fall. Don't think we've got it all figured out. This book has more for us to learn. Still today, few still buy into the concept that Scripture has more light for us, even in the Seventh-day Adventist church. We may have thousands and thousands of books interpreting these things, but we're still here and there are things we don't understand. So we need to continue to hold to that Protestant idea, truth is progressive, and there's more light in here to be revealed. But there was more. God was calling people out of all this confusion, which Scripture identified as Babylon, confused religion, back to the primitive, simple faith of the early Christians. And Revelation 12, 17 talks about what that struggle would be like at the close of earth's history, the dragon, who's the dragon? Devil himself, was wroth or furious with the woman, the true woman, the true church. What, who is the true church? What, how do we know? It says, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. The true church was the one that Jesus started. Truths in this book. And then it identifies some characteristics, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Two key identifiers, keeping the commandments of God and Revelation 19.10 saying the flame of prophecy would be kept alive in that movement. 
God would keep revealing what was going to happen. So our challenge today is find that group and stay close. But Revelation 13, the scene changes, as we, as we hinted on a minute ago. Why would the nation change? If its intention was a safe haven for continued light to be revealed, and if the decision is being made by individuals in that country, we've got enough light, we're okay, we're good, what would happen? At the end of verse 11, it says, And he spake as a dragon. We're told a nation speaks through its legal and judicial system and laws. And in history, what is the process by which the religion of God falls from having power, godly power, to wielding persecuting power? You ever wonder that? How does it go from you have the power of heaven to you are using a force-driven power of the state? And I'd like to propose this. It is when the church and its adherents are really no different than the world. When they lower the standards and dilute the brand identity. In business today, the absolute worst decision you could make is, we're going to start a company, it's going to be like all the others, and we're not going to do anything to stand out. That is a recipe for failure. And I would argue the same for a church and a movement. Unless you have some distinctive things, you're going to blend right in. When the church loses its power, it turns to power. When the church loses its power, it turns to those in power. When the church loses its power from God, it turns to the power of men. If we can't entice you to join us, we'll force you. And so what does the Bible predict for the future of this nation? Verse 12. Remember, these are not my words. We're going to read scripture and then what hundreds of thousands of people have identified before. Revelation 13, verse 12. He exercises, talking about this kingdom, this power, the United States, exercises all the power of the first beast, or kingdom, before him, and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. It'd be good if you'd got to these notes and you could really study this out. Quoting from the book, The Great Controversy on this passage, that the Bible foretells that America will develop this, this system, I quote, the spirit of intolerance and persecution will be developed in America like it was of the empires and superpowers that came before her. Could that happen? Intolerance to a particular religious belief in this nation. Revelation 13, 13 goes on to say that it will be through signs and miracles. This is the, the chief way that America goes from what its intentions were from its founders and the founding documents 
to a persecuting power through signs and miracles, the United States, eventually the whole world, will be deceived, that's verse 13, into persecuting those that don't fall in line with the majority. This isn't a foreign concept. If, if you go to school right now, if you are at work, and you walk into a room, and the majority believes something, it's not easy to be someone who believes something very contrary in these days. Why would you believe that? Everybody believes this. This country was founded to protect the minority because you protect the arts. You protect freedom of thought. Oh, you think that? Why do you think that? That's interesting. But as soon as you start to not like what somebody's contrarian worldview is, you quickly label it things and you become an accuser of the brethren like Scripture calls. And you say, that's hate speech. I don't agree with you. That's hate speech. 1 Timothy 4.1. We're going to keep moving along. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the last days some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And so, you know, we're, we're in a long series here. I know we've studied a lot of things. But you'll remember, these fallen angels are threatened because they've been told we will be taking their spots in heaven. Scripture tells us in Revelation 13 and 1 Timothy 4.1, they're going to come on the earth and deceive people. The day would come, verse 14, Revelation 13.14, that they should make, there's some key words, an image to the beast. That's the one that came before this country which had the wound by a sword and did live, that America should honor the papacy, the longest-running entity where church and state were united. The phrase they should make denotes a country where legislative power rests with the vote and voice of the people. You look at the different strikes taking place, the, the teacher's strike taking place out in Los Angeles, I believe, and others. This country, when we go out and protest, we usually see something happen. So it's, it's a nation where it knows the people can stand up and demand certain changes in law and, and practice and policy. Verse 15, that America, so we're talking about this beast, would force those who don't worship the image of the beast should be killed. What is the image of the beast? What is an image of something? Uh, here in the South, we use an expression, you're a spitting image of your father. You're a spitting image of your mother. You look just like that. And so what it's saying is, a replica of what existed before, an image, that America would closely resemble the power that ruled for 1260 years, a state heavily influenced by the church. How could this happen? How could this happen? Verse 16, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. So there's some method here, these are my own words, some method here to identify people by their behaviors and practices, 
I need to know everything about you so that potentially I could force you into a certain behavior. You would have to have a society that was heavily built on means and ways to do that. And you'll notice my smile. Verse 17. No man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So there is some way to track everyone to the extent that you can limit someone's ability to access their bank account, to take money out, or to put money in, to use that credit card to spend or receive money. You will have to be the judge of if systems are in place for these levels of persecution to take place. Verse 18, here is wisdom. Let him that has understanding count the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Okay, so this is where people start to talk about the mark of the beast. Uh, We don't have time to talk about that today. But when we talk about marks of authority, uh, cattle are branded, cars are branded, clothing is branded. And when someone has a brand or a mark on something, it's their brand signature. We did this. Let me read you a few interesting statements. Priest T. Enright says, It was the Holy Catholic Church that changed the day of rest from Saturday to Sunday. So this is historical record. The first day of the week. It not only compelled all to keep Sunday, but at the Council of Laodicea in A.D. 364, It condemned those who kept the Sabbath. So that's interesting. I just want to use that for reference of someone thinking, my belief system is right and yours is not. You will be persecuted for believing differently than me. So America was founded to never let that happen. John A. O'Brien in the Sunday Visitor said, but since Saturday, not Sunday, is specified in the Bible, isn't it curious that non-Catholics who claim to take their religion directly from the Bible and not from the church observe Sunday instead of Saturday. And then C.F. Thomas, uh, the chancellor of Cardinal Gibbons, Gibbons, quotes this, Of course, the Catholic Church claims that the change of Sabbath to Sunday was her act, and the act is a mark of her ecclesiastical power and authority in religious matters. So here's where we're at. There's a lot more we could study there. The Bible predicts that America would abandon the secrets of her power, her lamb-like horns. And like Samson, when he cut off the secret of his strength with his hair, these horns would be broken. That America would see the sunset of true Protestantism and of the Republic. And that one day, Church and state would unite. That's that's what Scripture seems to paint the picture of. Ellen White, the author of the book, The Great Controversy, writes, Our country shall repudiate every principle of its constitution as a Protestant and Republican government. When Jesus was asked by his disciples about what life would be like just before his return, He tells them some signs to look out for. So I just want to put all these things on the table, and we should leave today not having figured it out, but asking some questions. In Matthew 24, verse 4, Jesus describes, and I'm using my own words here. Please look these up. 
There would be deception or fake news everywhere. You wouldn't know who to believe. He uses the word, don't be deceived. Verse 5, there would be people claiming to be Christians guilty of not telling the truth. Why is that a big deal? Because one of the commandments is not to lie. So Jesus says, here's a sign that my coming is near. Verse 6, there will exist the threat of war. But then he says, but don't be afraid. These are just leading up to final events. Verse 7, there will be disasters, famines, disease, and earthquakes. And I know I've touched on a hot topic a few times, but there are some who believe these are climate-related activities. So whether we call them climate change or whether we just call them natural disasters, I think it's fair to say Jesus was saying, you're going to see rain in the south like you've never seen it. (laughs) You're going to see droughts in places like you've never seen it. Wildfires like you've never seen. And all I can say is from my own travels, there are patterns of weather that are different than they were before. Whatever the cause is, let's have some lunch and talk about that. Verse 8, in the sequence, there would rise persecution. People would not like some people's beliefs and persecution would rise. I mean, he even reiterates in verse 24, there would be deceptions with signs and wonders. It would be easy to go through life ignorant. And I will admit, sometimes ignorance is bliss. But if you knew there's a prize at the end of a tunnel, do you want the prize? Unfortunately, you've got to go through the tunnel. The Bible describes God is with us through the darkness of life. It does not describe, though, that he takes us around trials. He says, I'll be with you all the way to the end. And so what I want to do is just show you some of the things I like to ask. Where are we, Lord? What's going on? Because in the United States today, I am confused. I don't know which news channel to watch. I don't know who's telling me the truth. I don't know what's coming down the pike. Should I start banking huge amounts for retirement? Do I cash out my retirement? What do I do? Is my health good enough? Will I see tomorrow? We don't know. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. But I want to show you the fall of republics. How have other republics fallen in history? So buckle up. Mike Duncan, author of The Storm Before the Storm, says this. Many people ask me, is the United States Rome? Are we following a similar trajectory? He says, if you start to do some comparisons between the rise and development of the United States and the rise and development of Rome, you do wind up in the same place. So what precedes the fall of a republic? Most majorum. That's my Latin. There we go. That's all you'll get. It began to falter in the Roman Republic. This was the code of conduct and normalcy for society. This is the way things had been. They kept things good. And the Republic was fine. And here's what it was. The hierarchical family structure in those understandings began to break down. Here we go into controversy. The traditional home led by fathers disappeared. 
Society was in a place to make sure social pressure was there to hold men accountable. So that if men got into addiction and vice and children's habits, others would say, hey, you're better than that. Let me help you. You're better than this. You're the leader of your family. Here's another one. It also depended strongly on the ruling influential class adhering to the consensus of society and the norms of society, not undermining it, undermining it. The leaders in the republic started to undermine the values of society. Law began to be used, we're talking about the fall of the Roman Republic. Law began to be used to change culture rather than persuasion and consensus. There were rising political tensions and factions. There was an unprecedented wealth that began to be had across the empire. There was a growing gap between the rich and the poor classes. The poor began having to sell their land. The rich began buying large tracts of land. Small farms started to disappear, and land ownership ownership became the wealth determinant. He goes on to quote, he says, At the founding of the United States Republic, our republic, everybody's a farmer. And now everything is owned by what? Monsanto? <laughs> That's his words. It's interesting. Review and Herald magazine in 1912 said this, In God's plan for Israel, every family had a home on the land with sufficient ground for tilling. Thus were provided both the means and the incentive for a useful, industrious, and self-supporting life. No devising of man has ever improved upon that plan. To the world's departure from it is owing to a large degree the poverty and wretchedness that exists today. Isn't that interesting? Thomas Jefferson had some similar views. He arguably said, we keep the morales and consensus of society as people live on their own land and work with their own hands. You move everybody into cities and you'll turn into the old world. And I quote again, people felt like the state, back to the reasons Rome fell, was no longer working for them. That the assemblies and the senate weren't passing laws for the benefit of anyone but a small group of elites. This resentment was threatening the legitimacy of the republic in the eyes of many citizens. Another issue, Duncan says, was citizenship. Everyone wanted to be a citizen of the republic. Very timely. Camille Paglia states, The movement towards androgyny, the removal of the distinction of gender and gender roles, occurs in late phases of a culture. People that live in these moments feel they are very sophisticated, very, I'm quoting, 
cosmopolitan, saying homosexuality, heterosexuality, anything goes. She's an atheist, by the way. There are protracted wars, crumbling infrastructure, rising national debt. This is the fall of the Roman Republic. These are, and I'm quoting again, these are all examples of a society, Chris Hedges says, that is completely unmoored, which means unanchored. This society is just drifting. Who knows where it will go? He quotes, he goes on, Pay attention to the warning signs. If you ignore it, you risk the whole thing collapsing into civil war and a military dictatorship. Rome went from a republic quickly to a democracy to anarchy to dictators and tyrants. Author Chris Hedges describes current underemployment, rising debt, growing sexual abuse. He's talking about this nation and the United States Republic. Rising gambling addiction, opioid and drug addiction. People are feeling alienated. Depression is rising. Loneliness is increasing. And disintegrating societies resort to violence. Quoting again, he goes on, Never forget that within the American society, we are a deeply violent culture awash in weapons. 40% of all guns in the world are in the United States. I think most of those are here in the South. 400 million guns to a population of 328 million people. A growing segment or majority, he goes on to say, of the Christian right does not have the standard of living that they once did and is being marginalized. There is currently an ideological vacuum in America which is quickly being filled, he says, by the Christian right. And today, Ellen White goes on to say this in her book, Education. Multitudes are thus led to believe that desire is the highest law. License is liberty. And that man is accountable only to himself. Anarchy is seeking to sweep away all law, not only divine, but human. The centralizing of wealth and power. The vast combinations for the enriching of the few at the expense of the many. The combinations of the poorer classes for the defense of their interests and claims. The spirit of unrest, of riot and bloodshed. The worldwide dissemination of the same teachings that led to the French Revolution. Then it ends like this. All are tending to involve the whole world in a struggle similar to that which convulsed France. In a world where automation is threatening the job force, where more and more people are underemployed, prophecy begins to describe when the church doesn't really seem that much different than the world. When the guy you work with says he's a Christian, but he does the nastiest things just like anybody else, the Bible begins to say, it won't be much longer. So you could hear all that and you think, wow, I am depressed. <laughs> 
And if I did not have, as I was talking to Nick, if I did not have the hope that I do in Jesus and how this story ends, it's no wonder, the Bible says, and what's happening in this country today, men's hearts are failing them for fear of the expectation of the things coming on the earth. There's a reason HBO and Vice and other huge networks are doing entire series on preparing for the apocalypse. Of why, I would argue, more than we could imagine, are prepping for a crisis. And unless we bring people to what is going on here, what is the way through this, we will be confused and deceived. We should be able to watch the news and end with peace. Lord, I'm thankful you told me how this thing ends. And that I need not fear for anything. Jesus says, it's quoted in Hebrews 13:5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I hope we can take these things seriously, but they, they don't fill us with fear. The Bible tells us perfect love casts out all fear. We've dwelt a lot on America. The global economy is tied to the U.S. dollar. So we've had 51 countries tuning in. 50 others besides this one are in the same story. And while we enjoy the freedoms that we do in this amazing country, by pen and by voice and by reputation and friendship and taking people to lunch and writing letters and notes and texts and email, whatever it may be, we should be telling people, hey, I have some peace about what's going on now and I want to share it with you. Without that, it's a stressful time to be alive. I'd like to pray as we close and ask the Lord to help us to digest these things so that hopefully we can learn them enough to share them with someone else who would ask us, what do these things mean? What's going on? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please finish the work you've started in us. Next week, we're going to talk about more, Lord, on why have all these things been delayed? There's been many hurdles, and yet still here we are. How amazing that you have held back the winds of strife. Please continue to do that so that as many as possible will be saved in paradise. Thank you for hearing our prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more messages and food for your spiritual life, go to adairsvillesda.com.